drive to center, going back is Cameron to the crank at the wall, and gone. So Jeff Kent comes up with a home run, leading off the ninth, his fourth hit of the game. And another drive to deep right center, and that is gone. Whoa, was that hit? So now it is 9-7. Here's a gun. Driving the left center by Martin. That ball is carrying into the seats. Three straight home runs. And another drive into high right center at the wall running. Watching it go out, believe it or not. Four consecutive home runs. fly ball to left field. It is away out and gone. The Dodgers win it 11 to 10. Oh, unbelievable. to Finley. The outfield is shallow, the infield is up. Finley today is one for four. Franklin set, Wayne ready and deal, swung on, high fly ball to deep right field, wherever it goes, the Dodgers have won, and it's a grand slam home run. Complex and straight out of God's country, Pauley's Island, South Carolina. 
The Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards Pay Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. Good moment, baseball universe. What is up? Once again, back is the incredible, the incomparable, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network, half man, half podcast machine, back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up, prepare to engage on this bonus episode of the digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. Want to welcome everyone in for this solemn bonus show today as we honor the incredible life of Vincent Edward Scully, arguably the greatest baseball broadcaster who has ever lived. And for me to do this, I wanted to uh, recruit the biggest Dodgers fan that I know. He doesn't even live in America. He lives across the pond in the UK, in Yorkshire, England. And, you know, this is the guy who once told me that Vince Scully was one of the major reasons that he became a Dodgers fan. I mean, you know, a European guy who's not really, you know, versed in baseball. Vince Scully made this kid into a baseball fan, and a lot of what he's learned is from Vince Scully, and I wanted to bring him in today. And this is my good friend, Mark Zolgai, from Yorkshire, UK. Mark, how are you today, brother? I'm great. Thank you for having me and giving me this opportunity to speak on your podcast. Absolutely, man. And I know that you've always been uh, this this huge Ben Scully fan. And you once told me that he was really the main reason why you became a Dodgers fan. Why, why don't you explain that to me a little bit? Um, so, basically, I was uh, just getting into baseball. Mm-hmm. And uh, one night, I, I turned on the Dodger game and he was just there telling it uh, like a fairy tale and it it was just different to all the other commentators you know and when I listened to him I enjoyed the game in a different way and you know like he himself when he was a kid he was a Giants fan but Mm -hmm. but then later he he became a Dodger fan through the way how, how he like got the game for himself and it was like it was the same for me, you know, the way he explained the play-by-play, like, he fit in so be- the stories beautifully sure. between the plays, between the innings, and that's what made me fall in love with Dr. Baseball. That's awesome, man. That, that is such a beautiful story, and I love to hear about baseball, you know, not just in America, but, you know, internationally. I, I like to see the sport survive. So I'm going to do a little... Uh, breakdown of Vince Scully's life, and and I'll have you cut in every once in a while. Uh, just sit back and enjoy the story of Vincent Edward Scully. Uh, since the emergence of baseball broadcast, fans have grown up usually with their own unique voice and personality in their ear that captures their fascination with sports and team. They capture us with their interpretation of strategies, conversational styles, inside baseball information and storytelling abilities. And on the surface, that's about all there is to it, right? But the diehard seam head, well, we know much better. The primary announcer, the team's voice, it embodies all the elements that truly connect loyal fan to team. And no one, no one was a better illustration of that 
embodiment than the Dodgers' great Vince Scully. Scully's career spanned two coasts, two biggest and most influential cities in America. Only two major league stadiums remained from his rookie year to when he called his last game. 67 incredible baseball seasons with one organization. And his constant presence in the tapestry of Dodgers history. It was a stunning journey from 1950 being mentored by one of the all-time legends, Red Barber, in Brooklyn, New York. Through various eras and themes that run throughout the Dodgers timeline. Um, Do you have any... um, recognition of Red Barber. Have you ever listened to Red Barber call games, Mark? Um, no, actually no, because that was way before my, my time. Right. And uh, it was, uh, it was uh, back back then I wasn't even alive. So right, and I'm, I think there's a few things on YouTube that I would uh, suggest that maybe you look up. And just because... Uh, he had such a huge life in Scully's in Scully's career. He had such a huge hand in it, and Red Barber is truly one of the greatest, uh, dot you know, baseball play by play guys ever. You know, the fact that the Dodgers had Red Barber and Vince Scully for you know seventy some years is just absolutely phenomenal. So I would suggest to you that if you ever get a chance. Go on Google and check out some Red Barber clips. Uh, I know you saw the movie 42. I think one of the greatest lines in that movie is when Red Barber says that Jackie Jackie Robinson's coming to bat, and he's definitely a brunette. (laughs) I love that line. I think that line is awesome. So if you ever get a chance, check out some of his stuff, brother. Um, Now... Scully, as you know, he witnessed five NL pennants in the 50s, three more with Sandy Koufax, Don Drysdale, Murray Wills, and Tommy Davis in a span between 1963 and 66. And then came the swinging 70s generation, that amazing infield of Steve Garvey, Ron Say, Bill Russell, Davey Lopes, and they would bring three NL pennants to L.A., He was the voice of Fernando Mania when Fernando Valenzuela created like this perfect storm hovering over the baseball universe, leading the Dodgers to a title in 1981. And he was there to tell of a season-long story of the 1988 Dodgers as Oral Hershiser and Kirk Gibson would upset the heavily favored Oakland A's for the championship. Scully was there for 50 years of O'Malley's family ownership. 43 years of two manager tenures in Tom Lasorda and Walt Austin, as well as the debut seasons of 16 of the first 18 Dodgers to win Rookie of the Year. He was the Poet Laureate of Baseball. His delivery was a golden-throated style. It was easygoing, it was laid back, he had a powerful command of the English language, he had impeccable timing, and he deployed his play-by-play oratory skills in a true art form. And we're going to get into some tape that you sent me, and one of the things that I love about Vince Scully, Mark, is, you know, the, the way he tells a story, right? So he'll be like, yeah, I met Babe Ruth when I was a kid. He was wearing a hat. It wasn't a Yankees hat. That's a strike on the outside corner. And he had like this long jacket. You know what I mean? Like he always had that ability. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it was wonderful how he can he could like sneak 
basically sneak these stories into the play-by-play, and it, he was always time. He never missed a call. Never and missed a call. And did you ever notice how, like, all the time, whenever the story wrapped up, that was like the end of the inning. That was like the third out. He never missed his post. Unbelievable. Yeah, I agree. That's one of one of the greatest things about him. That Absolutely. Timed it per- perfectly. Sure. Um, he also had this elongated announcement at the beginning of his broadcast when he would say, it's time for Dodgers baseball. And that was as recognizable to Los Angelinos as, I don't know, the Hollywood sign. His style was straightforward and objective. While it was obvious he loved his Dodgers, he was never like this Homer Simpson in the press box. He called it down the middle, regardless of which team made the great play. Or the hapless mistake. Let me ask you: Do you, do you like a homer in the press box, or do you like someone like Vin who calls it down the middle? I well, I I like it the way Win tells it. He never got really overexcited, you know. He wasn't really shouting. He just had this wonderful way to explain it and tell it mm-hmm. the way it happened. It was different to like other like you know when. And when Harry Carey was for the Cubs, he used to shout all the, all, all yeah. the, lungs, all the home runs. Yeah. So it was very different, but I think he was very unique and it was presented very well. Absolutely. And, you know, not being a homer in the, in the uh, press box, that was another skill that he learned from his mentor, Red Barber, who impressed on him that he should be reporting and not cheerleading. And... He was also very cognizant in the beginning that he was calling games in New York City. And not only were Dodgers fans listening, so were Yankees and Giants fans as well. And he would often say, objectivity is a habit. And on a side note, I've learned that from Scully as well in my podcast endeavors. Be aware of who your audience is and be a storyteller, not a cheerleader. Of course, I have a favorite team just like all of you in the audience, but that all goes to the side once the mic goes hot. I'm here to give you the story in its truth and without bias. I think that the 1979 We Are Families Pirates Pod is a perfect illustration of that. It was such a painful moment in my life, but I'm not the story. The story is the story. And I've learned that lesson from guys like Scully. You can be... A one-dimensional homer, or you can open yourself to the whole new world of thought, insight, history, and perspective. And Scully's love of sports broadcasting goes back to his childhood, listening to bro- uh, broadcast giant legends like Byron Sam, Ted Husing, Bill Stern. And when he was asked by a teacher at 80 year- eight years old what he wanted to be when he grew up, he simply wrote sports announcer in his composition. And he would often call the neighborhood stickball games with his friends in the streets of New York. He was born in the Bronx on November 29, 1927. And after watching the Giants get drubbed in Game 2 of the 1936 World Series with the Yankees, he felt sorry for the dudes in orange and black and he became a fan and he adopted the Giants as his team growing up. He especially idolized Mel Ott, the left-handed giant slugger. He would sometimes emulate the uh, Ott swing with his high front leg kick upon swinging the bat, a technique resulting in 512 career home runs on the Major League Baseball level for, for Ott. And although Scully would later admit the batting style did nothing to help Scully, uh, he did play outfield for his varsity high school and college baseball teams. 
After a short break for service in the United States Navy towards the tail end of World War II, he went back to Fordham University, where he was a part of the initial class of students admitted for a brand new radio communications program. It was there where he would receive his first hands-on experience of working at a radio station handling baseball, basketball, and baseball games, as well as many other uh, station responsibilities. Upon graduation in June of 1949, he accepts a summer internship with CBS affiliate WTOP in Washington, D.C., a radio station I'm very familiar with, and that's where his skills begin to shine through for recognition. That fall, he covered a key Boston University Maryland Terrapins college football matchup when the primary announcer fell ill. And despite the adverse conditions of calling the game from the roof of Fenway Park in the middle of a bone-chilling November day, he made a favorable impression on Red Barber, the network sports director, who was also the Dodgers broadcaster during the summer. And a few weeks later, Ernie Harwell, Hall of Famer announcer, he jumped shit to call games for the rival Giants, Red Barber would recommend Scully to Dodgers President Branch Rickey, who would then hire him to join the team of Barber and Connie Desmond at the tender, unseasoned age of 22. Uh, there was the Southern Gentleman of Barber, the good-natured Irishman with the booming baritone voice of Desmond and Scully. Uh, I'm sorry, with the booming baritone voice of Desmond. And Scully was like the kid off the streets of New York as this trio formed a very cohesive unit. Barbara and Desmond, you know, they loved Scully. And they took the kid under their wing. Vid would handle the third and seventh inning. And he quickly showed his ability to not only understand what he was watching, but also have the acute ability to communicate this knowledge to the listeners in his naturally powerful, rich voice. It was Barber who set the Scully work ethic in motion by telling the youngster to always get to the park early and be prepared and accurate. When Red balked at the 1953 Dodgers-Yankees World Series broadcast gig, the assignment was offered to Scully with his mentor's blessing, and he paired up with Mel Allen, who I've covered in our This Week in Baseball podcast show. If you haven't heard that, I recommend you go to diamondsnakejake.poppy.com to hear that or any of the other shows in my archives. The incredible job that he and Mel did for the 1953 World Series had viewers and the press taking notice. Soon thereafter, Barbara went to the crosstown rival Yankees, while Desmond became frequently unreliable as he wrestled with alcoholism. After the 1954 season, Scully was given top bill. In his career, he called over 9,000 games, but his favorite moment was watching the 1955 Dodgers finally bust the Yankees' ass for a world championship. They had lost to the Yankees in 41, 47, 49, 52, and 53. And after watching Jackie, Pee Wee, Campy, Hodges, Nuke, and the Duke, they are watching these guys always come up short. The Dodgers were vindicated when Johnny Padres shot shut down the Bombers in Game 7, 2 to nothing in 1955. On that last out, Scully said, Ladies and gentlemen, the Brooklyn Dodgers are the champions of the world. And then he stopped, and he didn't say anything. 
And all Wentzer people asked him, how did he keep his composure? And his answer was that he was so emotionally overwhelmed that if he had to say another word, he might have cried. When the Dodgers moved to L.A. in 1957, there were those who believed Scully should adjust his style to better promote the relocated team to the new audience. There was even talk of replacing his partner, Jerry Doggart, for someone more familiar to the Southern California market. But Vin made the case to Walter O'Malley for Doggart to remain a sidekick, and he eschewed openly rooting for the Dodgers. O'Malley agreed, and Doggett remained in the booth with Scully for nearly a third of a century, each of them calling their own innings. And it was around this time that transistor radios were being seen held by many fans inside of Dodger Stadium as the action was playing out on the field. Now, East Coast critics of the of the day, they lambasted the new uh, Dodgers fan, claiming that Pocket radios were proof that the SoCal fan was so ignorant of the sport that it had to be explained. But that really wasn't the case, considering that the Pacific Coast League had long played in Southern California. The reason was Vin Scully instantly captivated L.A. And although the fans were aware of the superstars that played, they might not have been aware of like these rank-and-file dudes. And they were curious to hear what Scully would say about those guys in particular. He would bring those players to life while still bringing color to the action playing out before him. In the 1950s and 60s, radio was king. And with the exception of Giants games, Dodgers games were rarely televised. Add to that that the new expansive region was dominated by automobiles and traffic jams. And all these things catered to the rise of Scully. Cementing a relationship between him and his audience. It also helped that the Dodgers won a World Series title in their second year in L.A. There were times when there would be so many transistor radios in Dodger Stadium listening to Vin that many times you might hear Scully ask the fans to please turn down the radios just a little bit to avoid the feedback on his end. In 1962... The Dodgers move into Chavez Ravine. And folks, I also have the history of Dodger Stadium in my archives. It's a fascinating story that I'm pointing you to check out. But the new stadium had Scully's voice wafting over the loudspeakers. And usually the stadium would begin to empty out in the 7th and 8th because of the horrible SoCal traffic. But those early leavers never seemed to care because listening to Scully was almost as good as being there. He also began to work as an announcer for tennis, golf, pro football between 1975 and 1982, which was overshadowed by his long and constant association with the Dodgers. When he signed the CBS deal, many wondered aloud if Vin would be able to transfer his smooth baseball style to non-baseball venues. But the Sporting News, they would smash that thought as they wrote, he is proficient in describing tennis, golf, and football as he is in baseball. And soon thereafter, he would become the highest paid announcer in the country. When CBS reneged on their promise to have Vin cover the 1982 Super Bowl, he rejected their 10-year deal. And NBC, watching from the outside, they quickly signed him to a contract to call uh, the baseball game of the week from 1983 to 1989. And so NBC was outbid for baseball. Fans across the nation were finally exposed to the best baseball broadcaster in the business. 
His choice of words was a delight. His language was fresh, witty, and unmistakably original. Uh, you know, things like a changeup squirts out like a bar of soap. The ball coming off the bat sounded like it was hit with the morning newspaper. A pitcher unable to find the strike zone was wilder than anything this side of Bartim and Bailey. The lanky pitcher on the mound with his arms close to his chest, he looks like 6 o'clock. A relief pitcher might be built like a two-iron. Watching two Dodger defenders fall down in the outfield chasing a ball looked like pins at a bowling alley out there. The first baseman stretched for an infield throw and looked like a pair of scissors opening up. As colorful and descriptive as Scully was, to conclude that his popularity was based solely on his command of the language, well, that's kind of missing the boat. The truth is, Scully loved people. And it showed in his broadcast. There was a sense of compassion in the man's being. He was always intrigued by a player that had overcome difficult personal circumstances. And he would weave these general challenges into the play-by-play without missing a pitch. To Vin, these were not just men with bats and gloves. He brought a human dimension to his broadcast. For these men are more than players. They are people with their own personal stories, and Vin loved the personal stories. He was always decked out in a nice sports jacket with a handkerchief spilling out from a front pocket. The consummate pro was all business in the booth. Not that he was strictly business. He once learned to do something that you, he once said, uh, learn to do something you love and you won't have to work a day in your life. He was one of the rarest of broadcasters cut from the old school cloth of a one-man booth instead of reacting to a color commentator's comments. You never knew what was next for Vin. He would incorporate lyrics from a classic show tune, a country ballad, or a verse from a poem. He might discuss the connection between Wrigley Field and the Battle of the Alamo. On another broadcast, he might describe watching players... Uh, how they used to navigate the terrace uh, of Crossley Field. Or, you know, he might just opine about the gas house. You know, seeing the gas house gang roll around in the dirt at Sportsman Park when he was a kid. He would pontificate about the books he was in the midst of reading. He could uh, quote Winston Churchill and tie to the action on the field. The man was a veritable genius, a master storyteller. And a historian. Now, Merrick, Mark, I know you've uh, sent me some clips here, uh, and it deals with a lot of this stuff. Let's take a look at. Let's take a listen to some of these that you got here. Let's go with this one first. I must be the worst baseball scout in the whole world, and I'll tell you why. It has to do with profiles. One ball and one strike. The day that he was going to try out with the Dodgers. Kind of a bleak Saturday afternoon. Game was over. I knew some kid was going to try out. And I thought, well, I've got nowhere to go. Single. I'll just uh, hang out in the ballpark and go watch this kid. Who was just about my age. So I went down to the clubhouse. I walked in. And I saw the fellow who was going to try out, and my first thought was, no chance. Ball three. The reason I said no chance 
was because he had a suntan. I don't mean the so-called truck driver's suntan, where only your forearms are tan because you're wearing a uniform. No, no. He was completely tan. He was, I thought, well, he spent all the time on the beach not playing baseball. So I waited, and he put on the tryout uniform and went down to the right field corner in Ebbets Field, the bullpen. There were only a couple of people there to watch. 3-2 pitch, fouled away. And he threw pretty hard, not any harder than the, some of the guys I faced when I was trying to play ball in college. And he bounced some curveballs, and I thought, well, he's just a fellow who they're taking a look at and spends his time on the beach. And that'll be that. I'll probably never see him again. Yeah, right. Where to go then? <laughs> and that's just an amazing story. What do you think, man? Uh, uh, Mark, what do you think about that story? That's something else, ain't it? Yeah, that's one of my favorites. I actually loved all the stories that involved him, like from his per- personal experience and from his life, the things he like lived through, you know. Absolutely. And it's so funny because that clip right there, it shows that he doesn't take himself very seriously. He admits, I saw Sandy Koufax. I was not impressed with him at all. And because he had a tan, right? So, like, by him telling that story, it's just an example of how Vin never took himself seriously. and Well, too seriously. And that's one of the things that I loved about him. Uh... He might see something in a game that revived a memory he had of Babe Ruth, Jackie Robinson, or even more the obscure, like Preacher Row. He was a believer that by connecting to the past, the game became more enjoyable for the fans, and it provided context for watching or listening to the uh, modern game. A little fun whenever we had a flat spot in the broadcast talking about Babe Ruth. The last thought I have about Babe, I was uh, pretty young. I must have been, I would say, about 13. I was a member of the Police Athletic League and the Catholic Youth Organization in New York, which meant after school every day, there were no lights, I could go to the game free, not on the weekends, not on Saturday and Sunday, but certainly on the weekday after school. Jay Gobert is going to lead it off. Hitting fourth there. Anyway, I was in the hole of grounds in New York, upper deck and right field. I mean, I can remember that as clear as a bell. And a strike to Gobert. Anyway, there was a commotion. A lot of people were running over to another area, not too far from where I was. So, being a kid, I went over to see what all the noise was about. And there he was, the way you would imagine him. One ball, one strike. There was Babe Ruth. He had a camel coat on, and he had a cap. Not a baseball cap, a cap. And the kids were all around him, wanting his autograph. That's going to be a strike, one and two. And I can see and hear him now. Just a minute, just a minute. And he reached into one of the side pockets of that camel hair coat. And he took out what I would say was a stack of business cards. Little cards that people use for business. 
two and two to count. They were blank on one side, and on the other side was a stamped Babe Ruth signature. So there was no pens or pencils or paper. He just handed out the business cards. And you might say, did you get one? You bet I did. <laughs> Do I still have it? Nope. Lost it. I don't know. Disappeared. Probably wouldn't be worth much because it was a stamp signature, but it was the babe. And I must say, it was beautifully handwritten before it became a stamp. Two and two. The worst signatures in America, without a doubt, can be found on baseballs signed by big leaguers. The worst. God, Mark, I got to tell you, man, I love that you sent me that clip. And he is spot on, brother. I know that you, uh, learning the game of baseball, you've seen your share of autographs. And, man, they they, they look really bad sometimes. You know, with, with the exception of, like, Mar- the Mario Mariana Rivera's of the world, a lot of these signatures look awful. Um, yeah, I agree. Because... The players sometimes sign so many balls that most of the time they don't even really pay attention right. to the ball. Like they, they, they speak to one kid and in the meantime they're signing for another kid, not even looking at the ball really. So <laughs> exactly. Just, I love that. Most of the time. I love that story. I mean, he just so perfectly uh, tells the story while he's calling the game and you really feel like you're sitting there watching him meet Babe Ruth when he tells that story. I I love that clip that you sent me there. Um, Between 1950 and 2016, Scully was not only responsible for play-by-play, but to provide picture and word description to make each game entertaining. He was endowed by God with several gifts that put him at the top of his profession. A great voice, a rich imagination, an enthusiasm for intelligent play, regardless of the uniform, and the ability to make a listener believe he was speaking directly to you. And despite his rise to national prominence, he never got a big head or he never took himself too serious, as we illustrated in those two clips right there. In 2016, Scully announced that the season would be his last behind the mic. It was an eventful farewell as Charlie Culberson hit a walk-off dong in extra innings in Skelly's last broadcast ever at Dodger Stadium, 80 years to the day that he became a fan of that 1936 Giants team. The Dodgers held an outdoor ceremony renaming their road entrance Vince Scully Avenue, which we covered in the History of the Dodgers Stadium show. The evening also featured tributes from Koufax, Clayton Kershaw, and Kevin Costner. The LA Times would insert a 14-page article devoted to Scully's incredible 67-year career before his last broadcast, and he celebrated his 89th birthday in November of 2016, and he maintained that it was important to spend time with his wife Sandy uh, and the three daughters and the three great-grandchildren. And he told CBS News correspondent Lee Cowan in 2020 that he had no regrets retiring from announcing baseball games when he did. 
in April 2020, Vin took a tumble in his driveway, and he ended up breaking his nose. He had some broken teeth, three fractured ribs, and a concussion. His slow recovery combined with COVID-19 restrictions that kept him hidden at his home for several months. And that same year, he auctioned off hundreds of items from his personal collection of uh, memorabilia that he had amassed in over seven decades of baseball. Things ranging from World Series rings to letters from U.S. presidents, personalized golf bags, photographs, portraits, autographed baseballs, awards, plaques, trophies, etc., etc. And he explained to a reporter that these are things that are important to me, but now it's time to let someone else treasure them. He and his wife, Sandy, they shared a lot of the proceeds with UCLA Medical Research on ALS, also known informally as Lou Gehrig's disease. In 2020, Scully acknowledged he needed the fans more than they needed him. And he established a new Twitter account that year to stay connected to fans, providing his thoughts on the Dodgers as well as uh, other things going on in baseball, opining some of the tragedies in my life the fans helped me to get through them, and I owe these fans a great deal. Uh, sadly, this prince of a man, the guy who never put himself above anyone or gave everything he gave everything he had to the game of baseball, when well, he died last week on August 2nd, 2022, at the age of 94. And he always gave God all the credit and praise for the chance to live his dream. In the end, Scully's longevity may best define him. Not because he was an institution, even though he was. Not because he could draw on seemingly endless reserve of memories every time the mic, which he could and he did all the time. And it certainly is not because it is remarkable to do one thing for so long at such a high level, which it certainly is. In the end, Scully's longevity defines him because what makes him special is that all baseball fans who heard that dude can mark the passage of their time in their lives with the acknowledgement of his steady and familiar presence. Scully was the soundtrack when I was a mere boy. And when I became a grown man, we inherited Scully. We shared him with one another like he was sacred. He was passed on to me by my grandfather, and I, in turn, passed him on to the many seam heads I have known in my life. As the years went by, you felt as though you knew him because he was always there. And that sadness we all feel now is because our old friend Vid is gone forever. And the world just became a little quieter when Mr. Scully left us last week. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little emotional here. Um, so, to Ben Scully, I say rest in peace. Godspeed. Time will not dim the glory of your deeds. And uh, I actually have a soundbite for you, Mark. I'd like you to listen to it. I'm sure you've probably heard it. You've heard them all. But uh, check this one out, brother. Our hero of the day was a witness of the devastating Pearl Harbor. That's when Corporal Seki volunteered for the Army. His unit was the all-Japanese-American 442nd Regimental Combat Team, which swung on and fouled back, one away. 
Anytime I hear Pearl Harbor, I was uh, 14 when we had Pearl Harbor, and there's our distinguished hero indeed. When I think about Pearl Harbor, I almost automatically think that's the only time I ever heard my father swear. At 14, I can see I was crawling under the big family radio, and I was listening to a football game, the New York Giants football team in the NFL. The time goes to one and two. In that game, I do remember the only time the great Mel Hine was ever injured was on Pearl Harbor Day playing for the Giants. One, two pitch on the way. Little number up along first. Chiefs picks it up and throws him out. So we have two down and the battle will be up. Well, anyway, as a kid, and they interrupted the game, and my thought, oh, why would they do that? The Giants were on the move. And in those days, they didn't score much at all. Hardly ever passed the ball. And so when they interrupted the football game, and they said, Pearl Harbor, my first thought was, that's probably in China. Because as a little boy, the Chinese and the Japanese were fighting. And the word Pearl Harbor made me immediately think of Asia. And the Asian, well, I was wrong. But So I went into the kitchen where my mother and dad were having the usual cup of tea at that time of day. He was up there, up there and he takes ball one. And I said to my dad, who had traveled all over the world in the British Navy and anyway, and I said, where's Pearl Harbor? And he said, it's in the Hawaiian Islands. Why? And I said, well, the Japanese just bombed it. And then he let out an expletive, which was really shocking because he never swore. And then he just simply said, that's war. And I remember going back, listening to the John game, not, not giving him much of a thought. Wow, what a beginning. Have you ever heard that one before, Mark? Um, I, I've never heard this one before. Man, it's just, it's just, oh God, man, it, we are so lucky to have been able to witness this guy do his thing, man. Um, I want to thank the audience for stopping by for this tribute, along with uh, Mark out of Yorkshire, England. I want to thank you for stepping in with me. Thank you so much, Mark. Did you have fun? Yeah, I enjoyed this very much. Awesome, thank man. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me, man. I know you're a, a diehard Dodgers fan. Uh, we love having you in the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. You're definitely part of my international family. And to Mr. Scully, I say you were a gentleman and a scholar, and you will be missed. Uh, do you have any last words that you'd like to say about Vin? Um, yeah, so I would like to thank him for making me a big, bigger baseball fan, <laughs> introducing me to the to the wider baseball family and especially to the Dodgers the way he did you know yeah. the way he told told the stories definitely you know, I, yeah and he made an impression on you obviously right yeah cool, I can man. still remember a lot of his stories absolutely well this is how we honor him man this is how we honor him um, as for the rest of the audience folks I'll be back on Tuesday I'm going to be covering baseball in the Netherlands as the Dutch 
in recent years have catapulted themselves as major players on the baseball scene. We got the WBC coming up next year, uh, the beginning of the year. So we're going to cover uh, baseball in the Netherlands. But look, that's another story for another podcast here at Backwards K Pod. Parents, if you see your kid looking bored AF, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless and win the day. Thank you, Mark. Have a great night, brother.